0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
2: Your fame is well deserved, Spaniard. I don't think there's ever been a gladiator to match you. That's for this young man. He insists you are Hector reborn, or was it Hercules? Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is gladiator how dare you show your back to me slave you will remove your helmet and tell me your
0: name my name is maximus decimus meridius commander of the armies of the north general of the felix legions and loyal servant to the true emperor marcus aurelius father to a murdered son husband to a murdered wife and i will have my vengeance in this life or the next
2: Brilliant, Dominic. So that was me as the Emperor Commodus, and that was you as Maximus. As Russell Crowe, Tom. <laughs> played by uh, Russell Crowe and and Phoenix, respectively, from Gladiator, of course, Yeah, uh, which is set in the arena of death, the greatest and most celebrated stage in the whole of history, perhaps. The Colosseum. So that was one of the first
0: great achievements of CGI, I think, in in cinema. I think it was defining. I think it absolutely was. I remember I saw that film, Gladiator. I was doing my PhD research. I was in Washington, DC, and I took the day off from working at the National Archives because I was so excited about Gladiator. And um, it was one of those films that I felt that when I was watching it, It wasn't just that I was watching it, but there was a sort of the ghost of my 10-year-old self. Yeah, me too. Sitting next to me, watching it, and just in awe at the spectacle of something that
2: I had probably always dreamed one way I would see on screen, but never thought I really would. So I say that it was defining for CGI because the artificiality of it, in a sense, was the whole point. The reproduction of the Colosseum was vastly exaggerated. It made it look much, much bigger than it really was, but that was absolutely appropriate because everything about the Colosseum. It's all about spectacle, show, illusion, exaggeration. So, just to have reproduced it would have been completely untrue, ironically enough, to the actual spirit of the original structure.
0: Because it wouldn't have awed us in the same way the Colosseum no. awed people in the first or second
2: century AD. And, you know, are you not entertained? It's all about entertainment. So, in a way, the, the, the film Gladiator perfectly kind of mapped onto the way that the original Colosseum functioned. So, I thought it was. Absolutely fantastic,
0: but isn't there a, a fascinating thing with the Colosseum? And indeed, the, the film Gladiator captures this perfectly, which is we're simultaneously dazzled by the spectacle and thrilled by the excitement. It's the ultimate sporting <laughs> spectacle, I suppose. But at the same time, there's always that enormous uneasiness that this is an arena in which people, you know,
2: fought and, and died for the entertainment of others. Well, of course, I mean that's the difference, isn't it, between the film and and what originally happened is that. Uh, we don't really have to worry about that. Um, I don't think many people watch Gladiator and feel squeamish or moral anxiety about it. But of course, when you come to look at the original Colosseum and what was staged there, absolutely, you you do feel that. And it's that that introduces, I think, a slight measure of ambivalence about the role that the Colosseum historically has played as an emblem of of Rome itself and of ancient Rome. Yeah, and I think it's a, entirely appropriate that the Colosseum should be the emblem of Rome because it is simultaneously stupefying, awe-inspiring, fascinating, but also kind of terrifying into our way of thinking, morally unsettling. Which I think Roman civilization was all those things.
0: Yeah, it's it's a symbol of simultaneously of cruelty and grandeur, isn't it? But remember, we did the podcast with Mary Beard about. Um, classics and the 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 study of the classical world and she said something that i always remember about when we were talking about the roman enthusiasm for violence and for gladiatorial games that we are actually no different because all those tourists who go to see the Colosseum, you know thousands upon thousands of them every single day it's not just the spectacle of the building no that is drawing them it is also the 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 dark and savage glamour of the violence at its heart. But um, so to go back to the Colosseum as an icon of Rome, Tom, I mean, it's probably these, if you're if you're picking a f- picture to illustrate the Roman Empire, it's the
2: one you always go to, isn't it? It's the, it's the single most obvious emblem of Rome. And it has been for a very long time. So Byron, in his poem, Child Harold, uh, wrote, while stands the Colosseum, Rome shall stand. When falls the Colosseum, Rome shall fall. And when Rome falls, the world. And Byron at- attributed that to Bede, you know, the um, Anglo-Saxon monk, probably inaccurately. But it's always been at the heart of Rome, and so the way that it's kind of evolved over the course of its history reflects the the, the patterns of Roman history. So once um, it, it ceased being used as a, an arena, it becomes a cemetery, uh, then it becomes a fortress. Actually, a, a fortress owned by the, the Frangipani, who are the ultimate ancestors of Peter Frankapan. Oh, really? Who appeared on our episode about climate change. Yes. It was uh, fleetingly a workhouse for repentant prostitutes under the, the Renaissance popes. It became a shrine to the Christians who supposedly were martyred there, yeah. even though there's absolutely no evidence that any Christians were martyred there at all. Right. And now, of course, it's as you say, it's a tourist attraction. And as Mary said in that episode, the hint of blood in the air is absolutely a part of the appeal. So there's a lot of
0: mythology about the Colosseum, Tom. So the Christians are not being fed to, to lions. In the middle of the Colosseum. Well, they might have been, but we have no record of it. Right. So the Byron thing, the Byron poem, that's
2: not right either. Is that that the idea that? um, No, because the original saying, which may or may not have come from Bede, but it's definitely Anglo Saxon, is referring to the Colossus, which is the great statue. Built by Nero, which we will come to when we talk about how the Colosseum comes to be built. So there's that, um, and also, of course, the Romans didn't call it the Colosseum.
0: So this is a this is a stunning
2: revelation to me. <laughs> it's not even the Colosseum is not even its name. I uh, no. So people who listen to our episode on um, the eruption of Vesuvius that we did, the brilliantly named Roman Apocalypse. Yeah, um, we mentioned Marshall, the epigramist. And Marshall wrote a whole series of poems about the inauguration of the, of what we call the Colosseum, and in that he calls it the Amphitheatrum Caesarium, so Caesar's amphitheater. Right. We also know it as the Flavian amphitheater because it was built by the Flavian dynasty, which was uh, Vespasian and his son Titus, who was emperor during the um, the destruction of Pompeii. So we'll talk about them as well. And this inauguration is is presided over by Titus and. The reasons why it comes to be built, I think that there are multiple ways of approaching it, to do with aspects that are fundamental to Roman culture, aspects that are due to the circumstances in which the Flavian dynasty have come to power, and aspects that are due to the specific circumstances of um, Titus's own reign. Okay, so um, I thought that that would be a good way to structure the kind of the analysis of how this extraordinary building comes to be, and it was absolutely understood to be extraordinary. When it was built, so Marshall, in his one of his um, poems, he compares it to all the kind of the great wonders of the world, and he says that nothing, you know, none of these wonders can compare with this astonishing amphitheatre. Fame shall speak of one marvel in place of all, right? And I think he was right. I mean, I I think in a way, the Colosseum is up there with the 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 Great Pyramid as one of the kind of the stupefying emblems in the popular imagination of antiquity. Before we get to the
0: Colosseum itself.
2: I mean, let's talk about what happens within it, which is gladiatorial games. Although, Dominic, not just gladiatorial games, but we'll come to that. But most famously, most famously, yes,
0: gladiatorial games. So the Romans have always been enthusiasts for
2: gladiatorial games, haven't they? And is that unusual in the ancient world? Yes. I mean, it's distinctively Italian, I think. But in Rome, they, they seem to have begun as kind of funerary rites, offering a tribute of armed violence to the shades of the departed. And they are staged in the Forum, which is the, the kind of the great central open space um, between the Palatine and, and the Capitoline hills. And these rituals actually seem to have uh, originated um, along the Bay of Naples, so the, the, the very place where Vesuvius erupted right. centuries later. And that this idea that it is a kind of religious rite is. Very, very important, I think, to understanding the power that gladiatorial combat has on the Roman imagination. Even though it, you know, that, that initial role comes to be subsumed within to entertainment, there is always a sense that it, it should properly have a kind of cultic role. So, Witness to this is by a Christian writer, Tertullian, who's writing in, in Carthage around AD 200. He's writing, back in the mists of time, because the Romans believed that the souls of the dead could be propitiated by the spilling of human blood, they used to mark funerals by slaughtering captives or slaves bought cheaply, especially for that purpose. Gradually, it began to seem a good idea to mask the impiety of this by transforming it into a pleasure. And so it was that the Romans found comfort for death in open murder. Now, Tertullian is, of course, writing as, as a Christian, so he is inherently a hostile witness. But I think that he is accurately fixing on something that is there in the roman attitudes towards gladiatorial combat which is a, a certain nervousness about the idea that it should rank as mere entertainment the sense that these rituals are kind of sacral rites the romans call these munera right but they come to be what the romans call spectacular From which we get obviously our word "spectacle," things to be watched, and so right the way through Roman history, even after that sense that the you know the men are fighting to appease the souls of the dead starts to fade, they still have to find justifications for it to say you know it's not just entertainment; it has to be something more than that. Right, and basically, as we kind of move into the latter centuries of the Republic, as Rome is becoming a, a great power, as the city is expanding. As the identity of Roman is becoming one that is standing across the whole of Italy, gladiatorial combat is offered as a means of maintaining social cohesion, of maintaining a kind of a sense of civic Roman identity, because the right to watch them is one of the key perks of citizenship. So to sit and watch a gladiatorial combat means you are a Roman, means you are sharing in a common experience. Although you
0: say sit, but am I not right in thinking that um, often you're expected to stand? You, you are absolutely
2: right. That was a slip, yes. So this is the extraordinary thing, is that under the Republic, Roman moralists are paranoid about the idea that people might um, sit to watch the uh, the spectacular. To the extent that um, the Latin word for um, for seating is seditio, from which we get our word sedition. And for the Romans, it, it comes to signify you know, civil strife, um, all the kind of you know anarchy, all the things that come from uh, a failure to maintain the proper social cohesion and the, the sense of moral standards. So sedition, I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. And Tom, yeah. do you
0: know what? There's a funny uh, resonance here because in England, among people who like football, there is a slight yeah. sense that uh, you know if you're a real fan you should stand you should stand and that the sitting is for what Roy Keane famously called the kind of prawn cocktail sandwich brigade yes who are going you know they're not going in the true spirit of the game because to be a true fan is to stand while someone is urinating on your leg from behind <laughs> and you know in the
2: sort of 1970s terraces Football fan style. I mean, it is a really interesting parallel because the the all-seater stadiums were brought in, weren't they, after a series of kind of uh, riots and disasters and mass deaths and things. Yeah, and I think there is a kind of well, you're much more of a, a fan than me, but I get the sense that there is this slight feeling among the kind of the really hardcore fans that it's gone soft. I would agree with that. Yeah, it's not just that the seats are just for kind of rich people, but that. Anyone who sits down is kind of portraying the toughness that should probably be the mark of a fan. Well, there's been a very
0: vocal movement in recent years for safe, what they call safe standing to bring back standing because it standing is more it's 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 truer to the spirit of the game. It's more masculine. It's more
2: hardy. It's more authentic. It's more proletarian. All these things. Well, the Senate, yeah, the Roman Senate would absolutely have agreed with you because in the, the middle of the second century BC, they brought in legislation to ensure that people had to stand. And the justification for this was that in standing, the proper virility of the Roman race should be linked to relaxation. So in other words, even while they're enjoying themselves, the Romans are affirming their virile character. Crikey. Okay. So that's very Roy Keane, isn't it? Yeah, very Roy Keane. So that is one way in which the Romans justify staging gladiatorial entertainments, whether they're munera or or spectacular. Um, The other one is that as the, the empire expands, And as the experience of warfare moves from the limits of Rome itself to kind of distant frontiers overseas, there is a feeling that there is a need to remind the mass of the Roman people in the city itself of what it is that underpins Roman greatness. So the the oath that gladiators swear before they go out and fight. Is modeled on the oath that is sworn by a Roman legionary. So there is a kind of equation there between the citizen soldier and the slave who is fighting for the entertainment of the masses. So the gladiatorial oath is, I will endure to be burned, to be bound, to be beaten, and to be killed by the sword. And that is an amplification of basically what it takes to serve in the Roman armies. Right. So you can stand and watch the combat and feel, yeah, this is a display of Everything that underpins the greatness of Rome, and just on um, the gladiators,
0: one quick question before we move on: uh, the gladiators themselves. You said slaves; they are slaves, are they?
2: That's, that's yeah. you, You're not a professional gladiator, but out of choice. No, I mean, in the long run, there are uh, notoriously uh, Commodus being an example. Upper class people, the glamour of the gladiator is such that the people who aren't slaves, pe- members of the nobility, even an emperor in the form of Commodus, wants to you know to, to partake in the excitement of this but they are slaves they are the lowest of the low they are ranked alongside such dregs of society as prostitutes and actors so that is the measure actors. of 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 just how lowly they rank in the social spectrum. I think we should
0: get back I think we should get back to that <laughs> attitude about actors <laughs> I know we have a few actors who listen
2: to this podcast they'll switch off <laughs> so because they're slaves they can be bought and obviously the more money you have, the more you can buy and the bigger display you can put on. Yeah. And as we enter the final century of the Republic, and you have ever more warlords kind of dominating um, the functioning of the Republic, so you get an acceleration of anxiety about great men using gladiatorial combat to promote their, their image to kind of harvest votes. Um so unsurprisingly, <laughs> it's Caesar who kind of blazes the path. So before he, he, he becomes consul, while he's still kind of trying to make his way, his father dies and he seizes this as an opportunity to, to really kind of cut a dash. So this is cast as Munra. This is about appeasing the soul of, of, of Caesar's father. And he gets 320 pairs of gladiators, by far the largest number that had ever been fought in one occasion. And he dresses them in silver armor. So this is a complete spectacle. And the Senate in the wake of this introduced legislation to try and kind of rein in Extravagance like this, and again to 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 draw the football parallel, you know the analogy is is pretty clear. This is equivalent to someone like Silvia Berlusconi, yes, using football, AC Milan, and I guess the way that kind of rival Middle Eastern despot's now are are buying football teams, yeah, you know, so Manchester City or Newcastle United or whatever, yeah, Paris Saint Germain,
0: yeah, absolutely. Sport as a as a vehicle for geopolitical
2: rivalry, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that the most intriguing way in which this is manifest in the fabric, urban fabric of Rome is that there is no permanent stadium where people can go and watch gladiators. So you do get them elsewhere. The word that describes it, amphitheatrum, comes from Greek. So it, it basically it means a space that can be viewed from both sides, as opposed to a theatre where you could, you know, you're in a semicircle. But it is a distinctively Italian form. So you asked about gladiators they're Italian and the amphitheater which evolves to stage these displays is also not just Italian but becomes the you know internationally the marker of romanitas if you see an amphitheater you know you're in a roman city but you don't get a permanent amphitheater in rome instead the artificiality of the structures that are built either in the the forum or on the campus martius on the kind of the outskirts of rome are part of the fun this is part of what ambitious noblemen are spending their money on, so that um, when you go to see gladiators, you will also be going to see an architectural extravaganza. Yeah, and this remains a source of constant tension under the Republic, but that, of course, starts to ease once Augustus comes to power and establishes an autocracy. And I think it's really telling that it's only once Augustus has seized power that you get the first. Permanent amphitheater in Rome, not built by Augustus, interestingly, but by um, one of his lieutenants. But Augustus continues to build his own kind of spectacles and stages for the display of, of gladiators, which are, you know, he puts on in an absolutely unprecedented scale. So Caesar had kind of raised eyebrows by by putting on what was it, three hundred twenty gladiators. Augustus stages a show that features ten thousand gladiators.
1: I mean, that
0: does sound. A a suspiciously round figure, but also like classic Roman exaggeration. Is it more plausible that he maybe had five hundred or something? Possibly. I mean,
2: it's a lot. Right. I mean, ten thousand is is Latin for a lot. <laughs> 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 so many you can't count them. Right. And, and I suspect that Augustus himself says it's ten thousand because this is quoted by Suetonius, who has access to Augustus's records. So it's like Donald Trump's inauguration, Tom. <laughs> yeah, it was the biggest ever. It was the yeah. biggest display
0: ever. Exactly. So at that point. The experience of going to watch the games. So under Augustus, it's becoming more ordered. Is that right? More regimented, more structured, more class stratified and so on?
2: Right. So this idea that the display of gladiators is somehow revealing something about the moral character of the Roman people, it doesn't die with the ending of the Republic. In fact, it becomes intensified because Augustus can control the spectacles. Everyone knows that it reflects his vision of Rome. By this point, spectators are sitting, but he, Augustus is very, very anxious about the fact that people are just kind of sitting willy-nilly, that they're just kind of crowding in, sitting wherever they want. Right. Uh, he feels that, what is it, the cocktail eating classes, the senators, yeah. should have the best seats and they should be seen to have the best seats and that people who you know, lack the necessary property qualifications should be shoved up at the top and that this should reflect the order and dignity of the way that the Roman people are organized because the Romans are obsessed by social stratification. Yeah. They have this thing called the census which isn't just about counting how many Romans there are, but what their property qualifications are, what their kind of moral standing is. You can pinpoint your social standing with minute punctiliousness. And Augustus is very keen on this and he feels that gladiatorial displays should do that that the place that the spectators are sitting should Kind of be a census in stone, if you like. right. He feels that a gladiatorial display should be a kind of a lived census, that people go there and they know exactly where they should be. But there is also, I think, something that is very, very unique to the Roman autocracy. I mean I, there's nothing really comparable that I can think of in any other ancient autocracy, which is that the emperor, by staging these displays, is kind of putting his reputation on the line these displays have to be effective. They have to be impressive. He has to be confident in his popularity with the masses because he is a public figure and it would be terrible for him to be booed, for instance. Mm. So that's part of the dynamic that you get in Gladiator.
0: Oh, absolutely you
2: do. Yeah. Yeah. The question of, of are people going to be siding with Commodus or with Russell Crowe is the key dynamic that that structures the entire plot. Yeah. And that is absolutely true to, you know, the jeopardy that is always kind of shadowing an emperor who's putting on spectacular. Those spectacles, they run right through the early emperors,
0: don't they? The Julio Claudians. So you you've got the example here um, of Claudius. Claudius, who is not a martial man at all, actually, is he? He's a scholarly
2: man. He uses this as a stage on which to pretend he's a martial man. Is that fair? Yeah. So it's it's um it's Claudius who gets the famous salute, "Hail, Emperor! We who are about to die salute you." So this is recorded by Suetonius. But again, what's fascinating about it is that this is not in an amphitheater; it's in a lake that he is about to drain. And before it gets drained, he decides that he's going to hold a kind of naval spectacle, and all the crowds kind of gather around the banks. And when the gladiators say this, we who are about to die salute you. And he answers, uh, well, but you may not die. Oh, that's reassuring. And so all the gladiators go, brilliant. And so they down all their weapons on the assumption that he has offered them a pardon. And Claudius is furious. He said, no, I haven't. And the gladiators are refusing to fight. And Claudius has to get up from his seat and kind of hobble down and harangue them and get them to fight. And that is an example of the potential pitfalls that face an emperor who screws up a display. That's not so Hollywood, is it? (laughs) No, that's not so Hollywood at all. So This kind of shambles shows both the perils that face an emperor. You've got to make sure that the spectacle is right. and It also shows that you still don't have a permanent amphitheatre in Rome, the queen of the world, the capital of the empire. Every other city with any pretensions to be a significant urban space by this point does have an amphitheatre, Rome doesn't. And I think we should take a break here, do you think?
0: Yes, I think we should take a break here
2: and we will return with the building of the Colosseum,
0: the spectacle of the Colosseum, all its political and cultural meanings. And we'll do that after the break. See you then. This episode is brought
2: to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea, it can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession
0: for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off
2: my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely
0: online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest.
2: With BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp hel slash rest is history.
1: I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier.
2: And I'm Katy Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades.
1: Welcome to The Rest is Politics, US, brought to you by Goalhanger.
2: Go on,
0: tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking about the uh, Colosseum. Tom, uh, you've been very remiss because you've not mentioned that you've written about this quite brilliantly in your new book, Pax, that, uh, oh, Dominic. that, read, that readers, that listeners will never have heard us mention before on this podcast. <laughs> so this will be a novelty for them uh, to hear that you've got this new book out, Pax. It's about uh, war and peace in Rome's golden age, isn't it? Life and death in the, at the high point of the Roman Empire. Your book, Pax, is all about the Flavian dynasty. And so now we have these people who have, they've, they're upstarts, they have taken power after the chaos that follows the death of Nero. Mm-hmm. So it's Vespasian and his son Titus. So why does this mark a change in the Roman attitude towards gladiatorial games and the stadia in which, they, in which they stage
2: them? Well, I think that they're not from an elite background. And so as a result, they are probably less tied to the the assumptions and prejudices that had governed the Julia-Claudian emperors. So they can kind of think out of the box to perhaps to a greater degree. But there is also a very obvious need to stamp their power, their authority, the existence of their dynasty on the, on the urban fabric of the city. And they're given the opportunity to do that by what Nero the last of the Julia Claudian emperors had done in a similar light. So, Nero had been emperor during the Great Fire. We did an episode on him. Yeah. And in the wake of the Great Fire, he clears away all the rubble and builds this kind of enormous pleasure palace that features a, a house sheathed with gold so it glints in the sun. He's got plans for an enormous colossus, giant statue with his own face um, and a lake with. Pleasure gardens all around it. And this is cast by the senatorial elite as being a, you know absolute display of, of, of self-indulgence, which it clearly is. But that ignores the fact that probably these parks are open to the mass of the people. And right. the key thing about that is that you know, there's no social ordering in a pleasure garden. People can just wander in willy-nilly. Um, so when Vespasian comes to power, he has every opportunity to get rid of this, this monument to Nero. Vespasian's whole shtick is that he's a kind of rugged, no-nonsense, old-fashioned, turnip-munching soldier right. with no time for pleasure gardens yeah. and, and golden houses. And so he he starts the process of demolition. He moves all the kind of the statues and works of art out from Nero's house, puts it in a temple to peace that he has, has built next to Augustus's forum, and he fills the lake with concrete. And then there is a question, well, what do we do with this? vast empty space in what is probably the the most valuable piece of real estate in the world. It's empty. We can do anything we want. And this is where he gets the idea we should have an amphitheater. And it's got to be on a scale that is sufficiently stupefying that it can basically seat the mass of the Roman people. I mean, it can't seat all of them because there's about a million people in Rome, but it's got to be large enough that it can adequately symbolize the presence of the entire mass of people who live in the city.
0: Is there an element though that because Nero was building a pleasure garden and of course Nero as you brilliantly described in your podcast when you did Nero and you sort of recast him as this as this populist, you know, showman and stuff, is there an element of them having to do something that is a very showy and b that is uh, democratic is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? That is open to the people rather than, you know,
2: fancy new blocks for the senator or an elite or something. Yeah, it's a proclamation. Well, it's doing two things simultaneously. It's having its cake and eating it because, on the one hand, it's saying, you know, we're not having any nonsense with Pleasure Lakes. This is good old fashioned Roman entertainment. It's going to be moral. It's going to be upstanding. It's going to be displays of blood which will make people better. <laughs> um, so it's it's absolutely part of Roman tradition. And on the other hand, it's saying, look, we are here. We're the new dynasty we can afford this, and we are giving it to you, the Roman people. And so that's why it's built on, a, on on the massive scale that it is. It's not just about fitting people in, it's about making a very, very visible statement. So Catherine Welch, who's written a brilliant book on the evolution of the amphitheater from its beginnings up to the Colosseum, has said about the Colosseum that it towered over the Roman cityscape in much the way that cathedrals later towered over medieval towns. And just cathedrals tell you a lot about the value systems of people in the Middle Ages. So the fact that you have this great, Monument to to sport and spectacle and blood sports tells you a lot about the value system of the Romans and the extravagance of it is the point, right? And it's it's a pretty radical new design. So the outside it has kind of huge statues, it has different kinds of pillars and all kinds of things like that. Um, It has beautiful awnings. It is designed to be spectacular. Yeah, and the further benefit of this for the Flavians is that it enables them to remind people who are going there about the great military triumph of the Flavian dynasty, which is the defeat of the Judeans, and specifically Titus's capture of Jerusalem, which had been stripped of its treasures, and these treasures had been paraded through the streets of Rome. Now, this is a sleight of hand, because actually there wasn't much treasure in Judea. The Flavians are... Massively exaggerating how much loot they have taken. In fact, the money seems to have come from Vespasian and Titus hugely raising taxes on the eastern half of the empire. But it's all good stuff. You know, a Roman emperor—the word "emperor" comes from "imperator," which literally means general. Yeah. So it's Vespasian saying and Titus saying, "We are imperatores." You know, we are—we are an imperator in the original sense of the word, not as Nero was, a man who never led an army. Yeah. Who just sat around playing the lyre. So it's making a statement about you know, the manliness of the Flavians and the manliness of the Roman people. And just on the Colosseum, the construction of it, we presumably have
0: no idea who designed it, who built it. These things are lost to us, are they?
2: No. I mean it's often said that it's it's Judean slaves. Um, It may well have been Uh, a huge harvest of slaves was taken from Judea, and they would have provided a ready source of manpower. We know that Vespasian sends a whole troop of Judean slaves to Nero when he's trying to build his canal through the Isthmus of Corinth, which never gets completed because Nero dies. I think it's pretty clear that Judea is being used as a source of manpower for kind of big infrastructure projects and and a capacity. So I've seen different estimates from fifty
0: thousand to about eighty thousand people. I mean, extraordinary when you consider the small size of the population compared with today that they are building a stadium of that size. But I suppose there's still an element of confusion in that—is it not set seats for everybody? I mean, you can—the capacity can change depending on how many people you're choosing to pack
2: in. Right. So this is this this now comes to the specific question of why it matters to Titus. Okay. So it's probable that. The Colosseum is inaugurated by Titus in the summer of AD 80. Might have been 81, but more likely to be 80. And that is a year after the subject of our previous podcast, the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum. And that is one of an, a number of disasters that rocks the reign of Titus. So other disasters include a, a major outbreak of fire. Right that destroys uh, the pantheon so this is why the pantheon the temple to all the gods will get rebuilt by hadrian you know the great dome building yeah. that most tourists to rome will have seen the best preserved roman temple but it also destroys the temple of jupiter on the capitol which is the most significant sacred space in rome and it had already burnt down in the year of the four emperors when vespasian comes to power ad 69 and that had absolutely been taken as a terrifying symbol of the wrath of the gods that, that temple had been burnt down. So the fact that you know Vespasian and Titus have been busy repairing it, and now it's burnt down again, this is terrible. Then there's an awful plague that ravages Rome again, terrible. And then, of course, you have the eruption of Vesuvius, and the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum were literally entombed. Yeah. So there are huge numbers of people who have not been given the funerary rites that they should have been, and so the anxiety is is that their restless ghosts are going to roam the world unappeased, and so. Titus has a desperate need to appease the spirits of these unburied dead. And I think there is no question, when he inaugurates the Colosseum, he is trying to do it not just as a kind of grand master of ceremonies, a man who is offering entertainment to the people, but as someone who is the moral guardian of the empire and of the city. So Titus had actually had quite a bad reputation before he becomes emperor. He'd been head of the Praetorians, um, so the kind of the imperial bodyguard. And that had given him quite a bad reputation. He'd been a notorious libertine. So his most famous inamorata was a Jewish princess called Berenice. Oh, yeah. But when he becomes emperor, it's kind of like Prince Hal in Henry Fourth, part two. He turns over a new leaf and says, basically, I am going to be good. So when he accepts the office of Pontifex Maximus, which is the chief priesthood in the, in the Roman state, he declares that he is motivated by one thing and one thing only, which is he never wants to pollute his hands with blood. That's very un-Roman, Tom. Well, except that it's very ostentatious, and to be ostentatious in your your programs is very Roman. Right. So he has a habit of lying around at dinner and... Um, you know he'll say things like oh my friends i have wasted a day for i have done nothing good <laughs> i'm like that <laughs> yeah i know i know you are so very very titus behavior and so he's kind of widely reported as as saying things like this it obviously comes from his own propagandists and when he when he inaugurates the um, colosseum people whom he had employed as the head of the praetorians kind of informers, the apparatus of spy craft that had been serving to uphold the Flavian regime. All these people are dragged into the arena. They are smashed up with cudgels. They are lashed with whips. And this is again making an absolutely public statement to the mass of the Roman people that Titus is no longer the man he was, that this is all about doing right by the Roman people, but more importantly, doing right by the gods. Right. And it's because of that that what you were fixing on, the seating aspect, is so important. Because a city in chaos is a city that is going to anger the gods. So Titus is, as Augustus was, obsessed with everyone having the right place. Senators have to be in the right place. The poor have to be right at the top. Women, slaves, whatever. They all have to be, it's a census that is now embodied in the stone.
0: Okay so that's the seating what are people watching so my sense of it Tom as a complete outsider to the subject and someone who's you know loves the film gladiator is that you go you've got a few men in chariots you've got a, a bloke with a net and a trident you've got the other fellow with his uh with his, his sword you've got a few tigers or whatever roaming around underneath and then suddenly being disgorged out of kind of grills
2: what's going on everything i mean it is stupefying these are the greatest spectacles ever staged. And I think that what Titus is doing, again, it's kind of a repudiation of Nero and it's an affirmation of the fact that um, the Roman people have to align themselves with the gods. So what Nero had done when he took to the stage and played on the lyre or, or took a dramatic role was that he was identifying himself with the heroes of myth. Yeah, What Titus is doing is often kind of basically restaging the dimension of myth in the arena. And that in turn is to cast him and the Roman people in the role in, in the part of the gods. It's actually people do this thing then they
0: call live action role playing or cosplaying or whatever they call it where they dress Lamping. up as Yeah, they dress up as people from the Viking Hero or as yeah. characters in Star Wars and they do what they do in woods or wherever they do it. This is a kind of version of that. So it's a version of role playing.
2: They would dress up as as heroes, as characters from history. So if the Roman people are the gods watching the spectacle of mortals on the earth, then the criminals and the slaves who are entertaining them are often being cast in the role of kind of tragic heroes, heroes from myth and so on. So there isn't a kind of set routine, but the whole point with staging spectacular is that you kind of mix things up. But you could say that there's a kind of a rhythm that is more obeyed than disregarded, which is that you open with displays of execution. And again, these are seen by the Romans as being an expression of the correct way to do things. So Livy says of the Romans that we may boast above any other people that our methods of punishment are civilized, which kind of may come as a surprise to us because we tend to think that Roman punishments are incredibly uncivilized. But it is important to the Romans that executions affirm a moral order. What is happening in the in the Colosseum is that this kind of ambition to make executions affirm a kind of sense that all is right with the world is being fused with the dimension of myth. So in effect, what they're staging, it's a kind of combination of a snuff movie with Cirque de Soleil. Right. It's capital punishment fused with brilliant stagecraft. And I suppose it's the stagecraft
0: and the spectacle that lifts it to the level of a ritual rather than merely, oh, here's
2: some guy who stole some bread, we'll cut his hands off or cut his head off. It's both. I mean, again, it's having cake and eating it. Right. And so Marshall loves these. We know about these punishments because these executions, because Marshall writes about them. So, for instance, he describes a man who is chained by his wrists and by his ankles, and a bear comes and gnaws out his intestines. Okay. So there's echoes there of the punishment of Prometheus, whose intestines were were gnawed by a vulture or an eagle. Oh, of course, right. There is a woman who is mounted by a bull, and again, I mean, quite how that is staged, what that involved. I mean, there've been many many scholarly attempts to make sense of that. But that again is a story that comes from from Greek mythology. Is that Europa? The story of Europa? No, it's, um, it's the story at Pacify, the queen who gives birth to the Minotaur. Oh, of course. Yes, 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 yes. So um, Marshall writes of this, let decrepit antiquity boast all it likes. Whatever has been rendered famous by song, Caesar has been reproduced in the arena for you. So it's the feeling that the Roman people have entered a dimension of mythology controlled by Caesar.
0: And they don't view it, well, our senses, of course, who knows what's going through their heads, but our senses that they don't view this as pure fancy dress reenactment, a sort of very sinister and dark reenactment of mythology. These are rituals that to some degree occupy a space between the, the, the natural and the supernatural. Is that right? That they... I think so.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there are people who just love the spectacle of blood. So Claudius was notorious for adoring executions. Which is funny because he's such an unbelligerent and weedy man. Well, so if you just read, you know, I Claudius, you'd never have that sense. But Suetonius is very specific and it's, he, he comments on it because it's unusual. Executions are, are seen as being a bit vulgar, a bit crass. But these executions are clearly, in terms of stagecraft, designed as works of art. So you have the entertainment value. But I think you're absolutely right that yes, there is a kind of sense that. You know, you're in the border zone of the supernatural here. Okay. And that, of course, makes it all the more thrilling. Yeah. Now, the other thing that is part of the entertainment is hinted at by the presence of a bear tearing out the intestines. The bear, is specified, this comes from Caledonia, from, from what's now Scotland. And by bringing monsters from the barbarian reaches that lie beyond the empire, or from the kind of the, the, the outermost reaches of the empire itself, what the Caesars are doing is demonstrating the global reach of Roman power. So those animals that are brought to um, to Rome, they're fierce in themselves. I mean, imagine seeing a a giraffe for the first time, or yeah, um, you know. I mean, it's kind of remarkable spectacle. But there is also a sense that you know, are we great? We <laughs> we can bring all these animals. And there's a wonderful passage in the Satyricon, which is. A novel written by Petronius, who was the kind of the most stylish man at Nero's court, inevitably had to um, end up committing suicide. But he has this great passage of poetry in it, where he writes about the wild animal being hunted out in the woods at exorbitant price. And men trouble Hamon, which is a kind of generic name for a a trader, far away in deepest Africa to supply that beast whose tusks are more valuable than the lives of those who hunt him. So that's elephants. Strange ravening creatures are born by our fleets and the padding tiger is wheeled in a gilded palace to drink human blood while the crowd applauds and cheers. So actually the the tigers in Gladiator in the film are not anachronistic. I always thought they They, were
0: anachronistic, but they really are bringing these creatures into the arena.
2: Yep. So tigers come from India. Huge snakes come from India, elephants of course brought from india and f- and from Africa, so yeah, this is about displaying Rome's global reach, yeah, and then you have the gladiators, and the gladiators are the climax of the entertainment, usually. this is what people have come to see because it is sport, it is about skill. people will have their favorites, and you know that sense that you get often in sport at its most intense, whether you know if it's boxing or. You know, if you're a cricket fan, very fast bowling aimed at the head. The sense that of physical danger. Yeah. I think for sports fans, even if they don't admit it, is often part of the excitement. Well, how many people watch Formula One racing and love the crashes? And there is a, I think I mentioned it before, there is this brilliant account many centuries later after the Coliseum is inaugurated. But I think true to the psychology of perhaps how the crowds were affected, written by St. Augustine um ab- about a friend of his called Olypius who who goes on to become like Augustine a very distinguished Christian bishop and thinker but he describes how Olypius is is very standoffish about gladiatorial entertainments you know he's he's not interested in seeing it and then he gets persuaded to go in and he sits there his eyes shut because he doesn't want to watch it and then Augustine describes how, as soon as he saw the blood, he kind of, his eyes opened, as soon as he saw the blood, he drank it in with a savage temper and he did not turn away, but fixed his eyes on the bloody pastime, drinking in the madness, delighted with the wicked contest, drunk with bloodlust. He was now no longer the same man who came in, but was one of the mob he came into, a true companions of those who had brought him there. Why need I say more? He looked, he shouted, he was excited and he took away with him the madness that would stimulate him to come again. And although that is about Olympus, I think it's almost certainly Augustine is writing about himself. So he's writing this in his confessions. This is the appeal of it. This is the thrill of violence. And I remember when I was doing uh, my program about the Islamic State, I was researching the, the snuff videos that they made. And there was one that was particularly horrible as a Jordanian pilot got captured, I don't know if you remember, and he got put in a kind of cage and burnt alive. But of course, the beheadings of um, the Western hostages as well were hmm. kind of regularly going out on the internet. And I read some statistic about just how popular a search term the name of those who were put to death on those videos were on Google for weeks afterwards. People wanted to see it. Terrifying. People were looking it up. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this is kind of following on from what Mary said that you, you when you quoted her, that we fool ourselves if we think. <laughs> that we have outgrown that lust. I think if gladiatorial combats were staged, people would absolutely watch them.
0: We're not that far away from people watching hangings, Tom. And of course, there are countries where hangings are still public or beheadings or whatever, and people human people will fill stadiums to watch them. But to
2: reiterate, I think that the gladiatorial combats are not just about entertainment. They're not just about sport. The role that they are playing as... You know, rights so that appease the souls of the dead. This is an important part, I think, of what is going on in the wake of the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum. And it's kind of manifest in very, very unexpected places. So you get, it, for instance, you get it in medical books. So this is the physician of Claudius, the doctor of Claudius, a man called Scribonius Largus. He describes how some people take a nine times dosage of a small quantity of liver cut from a fallen gladiator. Oh my word! So right, yeah. yeah. So so a dead gladiator is seen to be, you know, it's good for your health. Yeah, and of course the other thing, which again is absolutely manifest in gladiator, is that the figure of the gladiator is very very erotic. So women who fancy gladiators are an absolute staple of Roman satire. Yeah, Juvenal, the greatest Roman satirist, is always going on about it, um, and it's a kind of constant anxiety of Roman moralists that that people will be sexually attracted to gladiators, and indeed that Roman noblemen will want to be gladiators. And um, apart from the erotic appeal, do gladiators have fans? So in
0: the film Gladiator, when he's initially, Maximus is initially called the Spaniard, um, one of the devices is that the young heir to the empire, who's called Lucius, Lucius Verus, I think, has a, a fixation. The Spaniard is his favourite gladiator. He's a
2: fan of the Spaniard. Would that have worked? Do you think would people had fans? Yes, absolutely. Right. Gladiators are the equivalent of sports stars. Right. And you know you would pay a premium to see to see the best. Yeah. As now. People want to see the best sportsmen. Um, they will pay more money. It it's it's kind of more prestigious. People in the Coliseum aren't paying, they're getting tickets and dockets, it's part of their civic right. But days on which top gladiators are fighting, those are the days that you want to go and, and get your place. So just on the um, Coliseum.
0: I'm just reading here, the Colosseum, the last gladiatorial fights are mentioned around the year 435. Christianity has become the state religion of the Roman Empire.
2: Would Christians go? Despite Maybe as a guilty pleasure, maybe? No. I mean, maybe not if you're a bishop. Pro- yeah, probably. Uh, I think, by and large, for Christians, it's not just that these are violent displays of blood. It's not just that the execution of slaves is unsettling reminiscent of what the Romans did to Jesus. It's also the enduring sense that these combats have a sacral significance, if I may use that phrase. You may indeed. Thank you. So obviously, it threatens. Yes, it. Uh, well, you know, if you go there, you are taking part in a ritual that is designed to appease the dead. Right, and that's not very Christian. So, on the
0: Colosseum, the Colosseum falls into a, you know. St- Relative disuse, I guess, after the fifth century when Rome itself is on its up as the city. I mean, yeah. Later on, as you said, it becomes a castle, the castle of the Francopans. The Francopans. The <laughs> yeah. But before that, it's a chapel uh, at one point. And that's obviously because people think this was the place where Christians were
2: martyred. Not sure. I think I think the idea that Christians were martyred is much later. I think it's the 18th century, maybe. Yes, I think it's the 18th century that that happens. Right. But I think the Colosseum al- is always seen as the emblem of Rome because it's the vastest monument there you know that idea that it is the the roman equivalent of a cathedral it's that kind of great statement in stone yeah. of what the city is
0: and the sheer size of it means it doesn't collapse when other buildings do yeah so you know even though it's in ruins now it's still an extraordinary spectacle isn't it i mean it's a huge
2: quarry but it's so enormous that even though you know chunks of the stone gets carted away it it retains the form that it always had right the way up to the present day and um Although you know we've made a lot of analogies with football and obviously
0: the football a lot of football stadiums do look like the Coliseum actually if they're if they're a sort of bowl shape. maybe a better analogy is actually the bullfighting arena because bullfighting there was talk at one point in the Coliseum's history I think about yeah, turning in the early modern period. Turning it into a
2: bullfighting arena, it never happened. Yeah, one of the popes, I think, wanted to do that. The popes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it—you know—he was, you know, not not an infallibly infallibly good idea. So <laughs> uh, that that was kibosh. <laughs> yeah. So bullfighting, I think, is the closest that you would get to what the experience of gladiatorial combat would be. And you know, for aficionados of bullfighting, it's not just about the violence not even perhaps mainly about the violence it's about the the sportsmanship the skill the display of expertise spectacle yes and I, I think that that's probably true to um a lot of the displays that were put on in the coliseum yeah it's both a spectacular story but it is quite
0: an unsettling one isn't it just thinking about the sheer the numbers of people who must have died i mean thousands of people i assume over the course of its history thousands of animals that were butchered yeah
2: tom butchered to make a roman holiday byron put it yeah
0: The scary thing is, I often think about this, if you went on holiday to Rome and they had brought back gladiatorial games, how many people would go? Yeah. How many people would would you go? Well, we talked about this when we talked, I think on one of our bonus episodes for our club members, we were asked, you know, where would you go back in time and all this sort of stuff? And the question, of course, is if you went back in time to the second century AD, you know, you've gone for a long weekend, courtesy of Doctor Who or something, would you go and see the games if they were on? And I think that's a really difficult one to answer because there's always a part of you that's thinking, God, this is a, you know extraordinary experience to see it. But at the same time, the horror of it. I mean, I wouldn't
2: go to watch a public execution now if there were public executions in Trafalgar Square. I mean, the, that, that account by Augustine of the, the man going to see it, I mean, it makes it sound almost like um, taking heroin or something. You know, you know you shouldn't, yeah. but then you take it and you're
0: addicted. Well, isn't the fear, isn't the fear, the fear is not that you'll go and you'll hate it. The fear, fear is that, that you'll, you'll love go it. and you, you'll enjoy it, Yeah, yeah. Ter- which is a the really chilling thought. Okay. So if you want to read more about the Colosseum, you can, of course, and you should Oh, Dominic. go to your nearest bookshop and invest in a copy or indeed multiple copies for friends and family of Tom Holland's book, Pax. Oh, you're being so nice to me. Well, it, I'm softening you up for stuff, Tom. That's what it is. <laughs> it's all about Rome uh, at the height of of its power and prestige. It's about the Colosseum. It's about Pompeii. It's about all these exciting things. The Empress Titus and Domitian and Vespasian and so on. Um, great scenes. And we'll be back next time, not with the Romans, but with something completely and utterly different. So we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.